So I was lying awake at three o'clock in the morning last week, thinking about uh, ultimate reality as one does. And I was troubled by my inability to articulate to my own satisfaction the distinction between pantheism, the view that all is God, and uh, panentheism, the view that all is in God, but does not, or all all created beings in the created universe um, are, are in God, but they do not exhaust God's being. Um, because, you know, I at least thought that my views were panentheistic, but um, based on my sort of dominant analogy uh, of the relationship between us and God uh, as the relationship between, you know, sort of individual neurons and the whole brain. Um, it was just looking, you know, inescapably like pantheism. Like if you remove all of us created beings and created things, then there's no God left. And so I was just kind of rethinking everything. But it struck me that sort of traditional theism uh, was equally fraught with problems. So, you know, traditional theism identifies God, you know, as a simple being without parts and which is really um, kind of inconceivable or it's at least inconceivable how this this simple being can meaningful interact meaningfully interact with created reality and there's a lot of it that's just supposed to be left uh as a mystery and you know traditional theists they they describe themselves as um you know not impersonalists they believe that god is a mind in some sense but if you press them on you know who and what they think God is, they'll give you something so utterly negative that it's th the definition that they offer of God is indistinguishable from, from nothingness. Um, or it's just flat out contradictory. And then they just say, well, it's a mystery. You know, and if you tell these people that God is a consciousness, uh, they're going to say that's an anthropomorphism because the fact that you know, a consciousness is, you know, finite in some sense. It's, it's, it's defined, you know, for them as a problem because they believe that God is infinite. And I mean, indeed, uh, he is. How these claims can both be true is something I'm going to get into later in this episode. You know, I guess for them, they don't really understand how uh, just because something is, 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 is defined as opposed to undefined doesn't mean that you know, it has to be externally defined. Uh, uh, God understood as ultimate reality is internally defined. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So traditional theists, some of them at least, will tell you it's an anthropomorphism to say that God is even a consciousness. And I thought, well, you know, ultimately, they, it, it, it just has to be wrong. If we're gonna, If we're going to have a definition of God that's anything like God and not an impersonal force that's absolutely random and indescribable, uh, like 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 the Tao or something uh, or the Force from Star Wars. Um, then we're going to have to say that God is a consciousness, and specifically the kind of consciousness that God is 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 a consciousness such that you know whatever He's thinking about is what's 
real or specifically what is what is actual as opposed to potential and of course this view has has its precedence in you know um theology um jonathan edwards george barclay but i'm not sure whether or if so how successfully they managed to rec reconcile this with uh simplicity or the infiniteness of god the uh und the undefined side of god um but I, that's that's another thing i'm going to be getting into in this episode and finally i'm going to be talking about how and in what sense god is love and in so doing i think i'm going to be offering a sort of uh theory or understanding of of, of the the christian trinity that is heavily informed by um uh the so-called cognitive theoretic model of the universe or ctmu uh of uh, christopher langan whose work you can find on hology.org h-o-l-o-g-y.org um, he is a philosopher who is as yet not well known but in my opinion he's highly original um really uh unmatched as a technical philosopher and i think he's gonna get really famous um as time goes on but as yet he's not really well known but um i've been hugely influenced by him um and i always have to uh give him credit whenever i'm wading into territory uh areas or wading into areas in which i've been heavily influenced by him or i'm just straight up paraphrasing or quoting him so um i'm going to be referencing him in this episode so anyway um the the resolution that i arrived at you know, to make sense of the pantheism, panentheism distinction was that it's, you know, sort of misleading um, uh, only or, or precisely to think of God uh, uh, or the relationship between us and God as the relationship between neurons and a brain because it conflates um, a structure um, with, uh, shall we say, content. It conflates the necessary with the contingent or the variable with the value. So I thought the right way to understand the relationship between us and God is uh, uh, to see us as, in, to see us created beings, us creatures as contingent, um, the contingent contents of God's consciousness. The consciousness such that whatever it thinks about is whatever's real or actual um and 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 god is the necessary structure of that consciousness much like how you yourself as a perceiving being are always um experiencing um uh you know various conscious impressions and yet um on some level you're not you're not identified with any one of your individual conscious states you're something that's more general than any of those a necessary i mean a, a a structure of consciousness which persists um uh through uh a variety of different you know uh experiences and um this understanding of the relationship between us and god um is from what i can see more in line with um uh the ctmu's uh 
understanding of the relationship between us and God. Because if you look at Langan's papers, specifically one of them called Completing the Metaformal System, in there you can see he's sort of in the math of his theory, he has us created beings as values uh, in, in, in a variable. Um, so anyway, this, this distinction um, or this understanding lets us see that the distinction between pantheism and panentheism um, is as follows. You know, pantheism uh, uh, embraces or encompasses only a part-whole distinction as concerns creatures and creator. But panentheism, uh, under panentheism, the difference between us and God is not only the difference between the part and the whole, but also between um, the contingent and the necessary. So put another way, it's like um, uh, God precedes us, God chooses us, not vice versa. And if you cleared all of us away, it's not like there would be nothing left of God. Um, there would still be, you know, the necessary structure of God's consciousness. Although, you know, this does put me in mind of something that I think Sartre, Sartre wrote in being in nothingness, I'm not sure. But you know, it's this idea that, uh, you know, the, the referential structure of consciousness uh, is, is called intentionality. Um, uh, and the idea is if you took away the objects of a consciousness's intentionality, then there's nothing less left than that in some sense, consciousness is a great emptiness. Um, and, and I, and I think this might even be applicable or, or the case with God in some sense, because God is not a finite psychological agent. He didn't come into being at, you know, some place in time or some point in some specific point in, in a, uh, uh, linear and externally existing timeline. When you consider your own ego and your own memories, you realize that these are things that are kind of contingent in the sense that you can lose them, you know, for example, to a, to a cerebrovascular accident. Although arguably, if you were to lose all your personality and memories, then there wouldn't be anything left of you. But if ultimate reality is necessarily a consciousness, then, you know, it, it necessarily possesses a certain structure. And just as analytically, you know, your own consciousness has a, a structure which is at least sort of conceptually independent from the memories and the ego that are the objects of its intentionality at various points in time or across time. So yeah, God is not a finite psychological agent, obviously, but um, there is a sense in which he is love, and I'm going to be explicating that sense uh, later on in this episode. With respect to my thoughts on the Trinity, I, I'm also uh, indebted uh, to uh, my friend uh, Luke Thompson, uh, with whom I've been talking about uh, the Trinity for several weeks. He's, he's Greek Orthodox, and I'm, I'm influenced by the CTMU, which really understands ultimate reality slash God as um, an interplay between freedom and constraint. And, you know, we've been under, we've been talking together about how sort of um, uh, the Trinity can be understood in those terms.
Um, one of the things that, you know, my, my friend is quite insistent about is that God, or at least God the Father, is, is really beyond language, beyond definition. And, and this seems to be, you know, consistent with, you know, the Greek Orthodox understanding of God the Father. And, you know, some, in other words, which is to say, my, my friend is not a heretic. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, and, and this, uh, a podcast, uh, I've been talking about one of Langan's ideas, so-called UBT, uh, which is uh, uh, unbound telesis or informational nil constraint, something like a DAO that can be named. A lot of people would assume you can't name the DAO, you can't name contradiction or contradictoriness, but I, I think you must be able to, because otherwise logic doesn't have a definition. Logic is defined on its complement of a paradox or contradiction. So you can reference that. Um, uh, and that's sort of what UBT is. It's everythingness and nothingness, infinity and the void, because there's no logical distinction really between both X and not X and neither X nor not X. It's the thing that is um, behind and underneath dualities. It is a sort of... Uh, I believe Langan has called it a one-valued logic, um, as opposed to, you know, two-valued logic with its binary distinctions. Um, but don't, again, don't, don't take me as a, as a, um, authoritative commentator on Langan's work. Uh, you know, even this definition of UBT that I've offered, you know, don't, don't, don't take it as, the, the work of a Langan scholar. There are no Langan scholars yet, uh, uh, unfortunately. So just, if you want to understand what he really thinks, go to the source. Um, so anyway, all of which is to say that I think the first step in articulating a, uh, CTMU inspired, uh, understanding of the Trinity is to identify God, the father with UBT. Um, and this kind of works because in some sense, potential is always at least logically prior to, you know, actuality, uh, just like in sort of Greek Orthodox thought, uh, I remember a video of Jonathan Bear saying that, um, you know, the father is like the sun, S-U-N, and um, the sun, S-O-N, is like the rays. So, you know, they're both there at the same time, but one is in some sense logically prior. I mean, uh, or you can look at like a fountain and the waters, stuff like that. These analogies actually all implicitly um, involve spatio-temporal precedents, and as such, they're actually not good analogies. But um, you know, in the CTMU, Langan talks about how ultimate reality refines itself from from UBT. So again, we have that sense in which UBT or potential is 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 prior um, to actuality, because in addition to UBT being a kind of one-value logic. It's also a place in which all potential events are, are reposed, you know, until they're actualized. Or at least that's my understanding of, of how the CTMU works. So in some sense, it's like what is not resides within that sort of contradict, that sort of protean realm of infinite ontological potential, UBT. Okay, so UBT is the infiniteness of God. UBT is the Father. Um, 
who's the sun or what is the sun? So I'm going to say that the sun or the, the word uh, is two-valued logic. It is that consciousness such that whatever it thinks about is, is what's actual. And that consciousness, like all consciousnesses, is not absolutely invariant. Um, it has a, a necessary structure that is invariant, um, but then it has contingent contents that shift and fluctuate. Okay, and what's the Holy Spirit? What's the third person of the Trinity? Um, it's customary to look on the Holy Spirit as sort of the dynamic or the interchange uh, between the Father and the Son. And I think that uh, my little theory of the Trinity supports that understanding. So in the CTMU, it would be called telic recursion, the process whereby um, ultimate reality uh, refines itself from UBT. In, in, in simpler terms, I'm going to be arguing here that that dynamic is, is love. And that's the, the final sense in which God is love, about which more later. That is, my understanding of God is that um, God is ultimate reality. Um, and that means that he is a, a store of um, infinite potential. He is also a, a consciousness such that whatever it thinks about is, is what's actual. Um, and that consciousness um, creates from the store of infinite potential, you know, out of love. So like right away, something about my um, uh, theory of the Trinity that would make it uh, unorthodox, at least not orthodox with a big O, um, is that I don't really know in what sense on this understanding love can really follow or proceed from the father if the father is identified with ubt um i it, it really comes unilaterally only from the son at least as far as i can tell but there is that sense of sort of logical priority of you know potential vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, potentiality vis-a-vis -vis actuality um but you know th this problem that that i you know i can't seem to say how how it is that the father can love on this view if the father's ubt that's not a problem which um uh somehow traditional theists don't have to face either because their their definitions of god tend to be so negative that in practice they're they're indistinguishable from ubt they're indistinguishable from you know nothingness slash everythingness and it's not clear how to how a totally impersonal thing like that can love for me it's very important to understand god as a consciousness and within a consciousness, I mean, arguably, consciousnesses are always sort of, in my view, composites of smaller minds. Um, you know, just like one's own consciousness, um, there's sort of already two persons in one's own consciousness, uh, you know, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, and sort of what happens when they get dissociated from each other. You can see in uh, Sperry's um, uh, split brain experiments. And so there's an immediate sense in which, you know, there's more than one person in a consciousness. And so if one doesn't like uh, this, this uh, first view of the Trinity that I've offered, one might look perhaps um, in a direction um, uh, like the second one that I just mentioned.
There's also sort of William Lane Craig's, you know, a theory of the Trinity as, as sort of like three distinct centers of consciousness. To me, that's a problem because it suggests that the consciousness of ultimate reality is not maximally integrated. Um, but anyway, he's, he's trying to sort of recover or hold on to the idea of, you know, the Trinity as really three persons, non-metaphorical persons, um, you know, in a relationship with each other. But anyway, I, I like this one um, where, you know, UBT is the father, um, two-valued logic slash consciousness is, is the son slash the word, and uh, the dynamic there between um, is, is the Holy Spirit because it beautifully reflects the structure of ultimate reality um, as a sort of eternal interplay between uh, freedom and constraint, which is what the CTMU is all about if, if, you, if you read it. So now it's time to kind of head off at the past certain objections that might be leveled against a theory of God, which says that God, or at least, you know, some part or person of God is uh, not um, absolutely invariant. And the first one is like, well, what's what's going on with God? If God has variance or change within him, uh, what is, is he is he getting ever more complex? And the answer to that is no, because there's no absolute external standard of complexity against which ultimate reality can be measured. And same thing, like, is he growing more and more? It's like, no, because there's nothing external to him in relation to which he can grow. Now, in a related vein, here, here's, here's another objection that I can foresee, that if, if ultimate reality, or at least some component therein, um, has gone through or, or does go through you know a succession of of states then does that mean that there is some as it were objective meta history of like all the states that this ultimate reality has gone through is there some absolute chronology of ultimate reality um that is in some sense external or independent of it which already we can see that there can't be because ultimate reality is ultimate. There's nothing outside it. But but still, the idea that there must be some such uh, objective or absolute meta-history is really um, intuitive, uh, even if it's, it's uh, misleading. But I think the way to get away, the way to escape from this uh, sort of misleading intuition is to think about what time is. You know, time, is it something mind-independent or objective? Or is it something which is imposed upon the structure of... Uh, uh, is it something which is imposed upon the contents of consciousness by the structure of consciousness? And so if we say, you know, and it's, it's, it's the latter, of course, it has to be. And, and, and so... If ultimate reality is a consciousness, then you know time is something which is ultimately open to ultimate reality's stipulation. Put another way, if 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 
potential events are reposed within UBT, then there's actually no real meaningful distinction between what no longer is, so to speak, and what never was. I don't really think of the conscience, consciousness of God as remembering things. I just look at it like it, whatever the consciousness is thinking about is, and whatever it's not thinking about isn't. But it, it can always turn and, and, and think about it, because there is something about consciousness which is fluid, necessarily. Consciousness is always uh, changing. Change cannot be reduced to or understood in terms of stasis because stasis is not more fundamental than change, it's not more generic. Change and stasis are at the same level of generality. They're, they're you know, each the complement whereon the other is defined. So you can't attempt a reduction of change to stasis, which is, I you know, it's like it's very, very difficult to, to, to capture. Um, what change is in relation to some kind of static, you know, uh, film reel, which is, I think, what Hegel was getting at when he when he said, a thing moves not because it is at one moment here and the next moment there, but because it is at the same moment both here and there. In other words, there's something about change which is just really difficult to pin down and reduce to um, stasis, and I think it's why. Langen in the CTMU describes uh, the sort of consciousness that is ultimate reality, the language that is ultimate reality, because consciousness is, is linguistic. It's always an exchange of meanings. Um, he describes it as a, a self-resolving paradox. It's always on the move. It has to be in order to be what it is. What is an unchanging consciousness? It's just static. It's unrepresent un, un, uh unrepresentable it's 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 the it's ubt which is to say it's it's representable only as a quote-unquote limit of syntactic transformations um that's 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 another one of that's either uh, an exact quote or, or a near quote of uh one of langan's um descriptions of ubt which i think that there's a ctmu wiki and you can see his answers to um, common objections to the CTMU. And there is some just really high level philosophy in there. I think that's, I think some of it's, it's some of the, the best philosophy that's ever been done, um, in human history. It's like right there on that, uh, Wikipedia page. So, but yeah, you know, wh why does consciousness have to undergo syntactic transformations? It has to in order to be what it is. Um, the only question is sort of in what direction is consciousness going to evolve? And so this is where we have, to, where, where we have to talk about what Langan calls te teleology or sort of the internally generated, uh, uh, self-selection parameter or utility parameter of ultimate reality. Or what I would call in my sort of Trinitarian terms, the third person of the, the Trinity. See, arguably, ultimate reality has to have, uh, if, if the principle of sufficient reason is not to be violated, then arguably ultimate reality has to have a utility parameter, because otherwise the principle of sufficient reason is violated 
at the level of Aristotelian final causation, that for the sake of which something is done. But, you know, can you violate the principle of sufficient reason? Is it is it logically possible to violate the principle of sufficient reason? You know, that's that's really whether it's logically possible to violate the principle of sufficient reason is something that's above my pay grade. Uh, Langan talks um, as though it's not logically possible. And it, to, to sort of show you the things that he writes, which are just like beyond genius, I'm going to give you an example. So this is from his CTMU wiki page. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. If I said that, I misspoke. Um, uh, he has a, he has a wiki page, um, and somewhere on it, he writes, quote, explanation is identical to structure. In order to fully specify the structure of a system, one must explain why its aspects and components are related in certain ways, as opposed to other possible ways. If one cannot explain this, then one is unable to determine the truth values of certain higher order relations without which structure cannot be fully specified. On the other hand, if one claims that some of these higher-order structural components are absolutely inexplicable, then one is saying that they do not exist, and thus that the systemic structure is absolutely incomplete. Since this would destroy the system's identity, its stability, and its ability to function, it is belied by the system's very existence. And um, so, with regard to sort of the utility function of ultimate reality the the idea is that on some level it must have one because otherwise there's no answer for why um ultimate reality is doing what it's doing um i've never seen uh you know that that is that is one of langan's ideas uh what i just said and uh but i've never seen exactly where langan specifies uh, what what the utility parameter is in full. So now I'm going to get into my own speculations. These are not his views. These are um, mine again. Um, sort of what the the utility parameter of ultimate reality could be. It, it has to be something sort of sufficiently autotelic. And and um, uh, in the last episode that I did. I talked about how, you know, to love something or someone is to view it as an end in itself. So it seems to me that ultimate reality cannot value um, what it values, you know, as, as a means to an end. At the very least, ultimate reality cannot value itself as a means to an end. There's no end outside of ultimate reality to which it can put itself. So you know, ultimate reality loves itself and ultimately itself is everything that exists. But, you know, with this kind of Trinitarian framework, we can distinguish between, well, not only between, you know, potentiality and actuality, but also um, within the consciousness um, of all that is actual, we can distinguish between sort of the necessary structure of that consciousness, its intentionality, and then the objects of its intentionality, which are beings like, created beings like us. And in my last episode, you know, I talked about how um, it seems to me we must be on the receiving end of 
uh, God's love. And that's kind of the only reason why we were brought into being. Um, to me, it also makes sense why love should be um, understood or why the, why the utility parameter of ultimate reality should be understood as love, you know, also makes sense to me for the reason that uh, love seems to me like a hedonic perfection. Because if you inspect love phenomenologically, you realize that it's intrinsically rewarding. If you look at someone whom you love, you actually feel joy. It seems to follow that if you love no one around you, you feel less joy than if you, than if you love everyone uh, around you. Um, or sort of beneath you in the case of God's global uh, consciousness. Uh, maximal love is also a moral perfection because the state of affairs in which everyone loves each other is also the state of affairs in which everyone's utility is, I think, technically maximized over the longest of time frames. So, you know, the consciousness of God is, you know, always hypothesized to be the most... Uh, moral and the most blissful consciousness and i don't think that's a you know coincidence um because those two things converge in in love here's another sort of argument that in some sense the fullness of all positive orientation is love hate is not some equal and opposite thing to love when i hate someone it's because i perceive that they're threatening someone whom I love. Um, let's say, let's say I love myself, you know, someone's threatening me. So I hate or fear them. Um, but if I loved that person in addition to myself, and they were threatening to me, uh, then hate or fear would not be ex my exact reaction to them. I might do things to prevent what they're doing. But, but, you know, in the long term, my actions toward them would still be guided by, you know, their their interests uh, as a person, you know, who's valuable in and of themselves. Yeah, so it seems to me that the fullness of all positive orientation is love. Um, uh, and that love, like all predicates, is defined on its complement, but the complement is of love is not the opposite of love, but the absence of love. Now it's time to get speculative. So um, how would infinite love look if it broke forth from the domain of potential uh, into the realm of actuality, perhaps, like mathematically almost, it must take the form of fractal creators, or of a fractal creator begetting, begetting many creators, or in CTMU terms, uh, uh, or nearly CTMU terms, fractal endomorphic images of of the creator um which you know these creators in turn create more things um for them to love uh and you know they beget children and you know those children in turn you know create more things and beings that they love like if god just stopped at inanimate objects that would seem to be uh presenting an obstacle to love you know, continuing to flow out of the do domain of potential um, or UBT, but that that is already getting like extremely kind of speculative and weird. But I've always wondered, you know, why it is that God uh, creates us. 
To me, on some level, it's intuitive that he should love everything on which he turns his gaze, but why does he turn his gaze on us? But anyway, you know, like the the fractal or the, the idea that ultimate reality should have a fractal nature should not uh, in any case be uh, an unfamiliar proposition to Christians because Christians all, have always believed that um, God's you know reality is fractal in some sense. Like there's the Father who begets the Son, which is incarnated in the God-man, Christ Jesus. And then we believers become cells or members of the body of Christ. So um, just to back up a bit and make a point that I failed to make earlier, what I meant by saying that God is love, or if you will, the third person of the Trinity is love, is that, you know, love is just God's stance toward whatever exists. Love is the fullness of all positive orientation, which is to say that it's the fullness of any emotional or telic orientation at all. Because, you know, negative emotional orientations are just absences of positive ones fundamentally. You know, and that's also a very traditionally Christian idea, the idea of evil as a privation of the good. So um, anyway, um, unless I think of something else to say that I hadn't originally planned to say, I think this episode is drawing to a close. Uh, the last episode, I was sort of reasoning backward um, from man to God uh, and trying to show through an essentially negative argument that, you know, God... God has to love us, otherwise absurdities result. Um, and this one, I've been undertaking the harder um, uh, uh, move of, of going from God to man and sort of showing maybe the a priori or logical sense in which God must be love. Like um, perhaps the statement that, you know, the verse that God is love is just, you know, logically necessary. Um in some sense so uh yeah there's i don't i don't remember who said it i imagine several christians have said it um the idea that you know if god ceased to think of you you wouldn't you know exist even for a moment so um you know this episode that i've done is a way of you know lending Ill illustrative force to that uh, statement, because, um, you know, a good summary of this episode would be that um, God is a consciousness such that whatever he thinks about is what's actual, and his love for you is such that he thinks of you always. And, and you know this because if he stopped thinking of you even for a moment, you would cease to exist. Okay, well, um, that's it for now. Thank you for listening.